When we want to connect with each other, how do we cross the great divide of different worldviews, cultures or religions? How can we work together effectively? Well, first, we need a bridge. Welcome to Bridging Peoples. In this Bridging Peoples podcast, we explore the human side of aid and development. Join us as we talk with researchers and practitioners about their work around the globe. I'm your host, Deborah Cummins. Have you ever wondered what it's like for women working in prisons in the Solomon Islands? Well, no, me neither. But when I came across this topic, I was hooked. I mean, these women are seriously impressive. Today I'm talking with researcher and filmmaker, Dr. Anouk Ride. Anouk, in fact, was so impressed with these women that she and a colleague decided to make a book and a film about them. The project is called Her Story. It just goes to show that, uh, yeah, women are capable of breaking a lot of barriers, but yeah, it's that persistence and that drive that you have within yourself to, to go ahead. One of the things that makes her story so fascinating is that the women correctional officers themselves did the research. This wasn't a mainstream project where some people, the researchers, told the stories of other people. Instead, the women shared amongst themselves with Anouk and her colleague facilitating the process. So we'll also be chatting about what it takes to really be participatory in our research and to decolonise the research process. Welcome, Anouk. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Deb. So, Anouk, as I understand it, you first started working in the Solomon Islands in 2008. Can you share with us a little bit about your story? What made you go to the Solomon Islands and why did you decide to stay? Um, well, it's a bit of a funny story because my initial plan was to come to Solomon Islands for maybe a year to get some international experience. I'd recently been working in Australia, um, mostly on sort of social policy and social inclusion issues there. Um, so I had this kind of idea in my head that I would come to Solomon Islands, get some regional experience. I was working for a regional organization and uh, and then move on to something else. And then I sort of got here and, and uh, started doing my PhD field work and um, just got really fascinated by this unusual sort of cluster of issues that Solomon Islands has. And um, and made a lot of friends and and then sort of ended up getting more and more entrenched in things and, and eventually ended up getting married to a Solomon Islander. Right. Um, so since getting the PhD, I've, I've more or less been working um, as a researcher, with, as you mentioned, a little bit of communications and film work as well. Um, and yeah, I find it still stimulating and interesting and I, I think I'll be here for some time yet. Yeah, great. So what's it like for you um, living as a researcher in the Solomons? I mean, the Solomons is pretty small, only, what, over 600,000 people. So um, it must be challenging. I mean, you can't really disappear into the crowd like you might be able to in other places. What's that like for you? Um, it's challenging sometimes. Like, it's, it, it has a good and bad sides. Like, the good side is... Um, you know, it's it's easy to develop up networks into different sort of sectors of society, different sectors of um, the economy and the politics and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I mean, it's hard for me to walk down a street in Honiara without, you know, running into someone I know, yeah. <laughs> um, which is a nice, a nice sort of part of life. 
Um, but then on the other hand, uh, like Solomon Islands, you know, like your your whole existence is about relationships and and trying to avoid conflict with each other um, as mm. far as possible because there's kind of a cultural norm against um, what would I say face-to-face conflict or you know like a conflict that's really out in the open yeah like directly challenging people about certain things yeah so it means that and if if that sort of uh, conflict sort of happens between you and another person you know it's a big thing and it, it uh, has um, repercussions in you know for de- dealing with various different groups and various different issues so you the best approach is to try and keep um, relationships with as many people as possible, right? So it means that when you're doing research, I'm always like um, extra cautious about what might be the controversial issues or the negative impacts of the research or even the negative impacts on a person's reputation or, or um, their sort of situation because um, if if anything like that happens, then it's going to reflect badly on me and my networks and, you know, how people see me and and how I sort of just coexist with, you know, a bunch of different people. Mm. So, yeah, you have to kind of like, as a, like we often talk about this with like local researchers, like the international researchers, you know, um, if anything goes wrong, they can just get on a plane and go back yeah. home. For me personally, like I'm going to have to deal with that relationship and how it affects other relationships. Maybe sometimes how it reflects on my own personal security um, and on my staff's personal security, that's always my chief worry is, am I putting any of the other researchers as I'm working with in a situation where they might be um, subject to, you know, danger or discrimination and all these things. Mm. So it means that you have to really um, take a sensitive approach, like tackle things in a certain way, like a lot of a lot of uh, sort of sensitive issues I tackle behind closed doors, for example. I don't really go to the media and, and you know, make a big public show about it. Um, and then the second thing is, um, is yeah, like taking a long-term view. Like uh, I think sometimes, particularly with development workers, there's a lot of pressure on people to achieve, you know, drastic changes in a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, which isn't realistic. Like I think we need to take a long-term view of making structural change and that means you know yeah trying to work through difficult people and difficult relationships and difficult difficult institutional arrangements over a period of time to make certain changes that you want to make yeah yeah that's so true and I imagine you get quite a unique perspective of that being as you are sort of you know both inside and outside of Solomon Islands culture so, Anouk, I'm wondering if we can um, change direction a bit here and talk about um, the research that you do and how you do it. I'm fascinated by how you bring in film and media and comms work into the research process. And you also wrote the book on, or at least a chapter of the book on um, narrative analysis. Can you tell us what narrative analysis is? Um, well, it's basically just using storytelling that's like very common, for example, in Solomon culture or Pacific culture, um, as a way of gathering information and analysis, uh, rather than maybe some, what we would say more Western standard social science techniques like surveys and, you know, statistics and, and, and those kind of things. Um, but the participatory approach is quite demanding in that if you're going to do it seriously, you have to, um, work closely with 
the participants in your research from every stage, from you know the conception of the idea to the publication. Um, and when when I've had the opportunity opportunity to do that, it's been really great. Like it's always a great. I think as a researcher, that's where you um, learn the most is through participatory projects, um, because it really is then more of an exchange um, between you as a sort of formal trained researcher and the participants as the um, local researchers, like working together on a particular problem. Yeah, right. What you're describing makes a lot of sense, Nick. So why aren't we as researchers doing this all the time? Are there any negatives to the process? Um, what are the cons? Yeah, it's, um, well, one, one of the big cons is time. Yeah. Um, like it really takes a long time to do participatory research because you can't just power off on your own mm. <laughs> and complete, you know, the, the methodology or whatever, you know, whatever stage you're at. Um, and uh, also, you know, there's, a, there's an element of, of training and exchange involved between all of you that also takes a lot of time. Yeah. Um, and just building up the trust, yeah, to, to do a project. Yeah. Um, because even though people might hear the word partnership or the word participation, for example, they might not actually um, trust or maybe have any knowledge of what that looks like mm. <laughs> in their previous experience. So, you know, working over time to kind of, you know, um, get everyone up to the same page and to actually be able to collaborate um, takes time. Yeah. And then the second thing too is, uh, you know, when you, it, it's good now, like there's a, a much larger critical mass of researchers that are doing participatory research and thinking about it and analyzing what's the best way or what are some good, you know, ways to do it and how you do it and all those things. So that's great. But then of course, the other side of things, um, the percentage of participatory research versus standard social science research is, is small. Um, and maybe it's a bit marginalized from some of those, you know, high level academic journals and in policy institutions. Um, so I think actually, you know, the, um, Linda Smith's whole idea about decolonizing research, like we have a long way to go in, 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 um, in going towards that and actually sort of opening up research to everyone rather than it being, uh, sort of white ivory tower. (laughs) Absolutely. So. What are your thoughts on more conventional approaches to research? Well, I think sometimes sometimes it's needed as well. Like, I mean, you can't do particip- – I mean, unfortunately, in the development sector right now, you can't do participatory research for everything um, because there's certain research projects that you do need some quick data um, on, you know, a baseline or, or something that um, that has to just use those, those quicker techniques. Um, so I think there's sometimes pragmatic um, issues come into play and some things are more suited to standard sort of uh, social science research. Um, I think when you're looking at issues to do with power, to do with local governance, that's where the participatory research um, can really help you uh, to analyse the problem and, and come up with suggested actions. So it depends on what, what, what type of research it is. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, it would, of course, be fun if we could make everything participatory, but timelines do get in the way. So this leads really nicely into another topic I wanted to speak to you about. Can you tell us about a project you were recently involved in called Her Story? Yeah, well, Her Story was one of the um, the great joys of my life this year um, because it was a participatory project involving um, a women's network who of women who are working in correctional facilities or prisons in Solomon Islands yep. and um, 
The idea started from another development practitioner who's been in Solomon Islands for a long time too, called Belle Stanley. Um, she said, look, you know, we've got to get some of these women's stories on the record because there are women who have been working in prisons for 30 years and they're, you know, getting towards retirement wow. age and, um, you know, there's a lot of achievements that actually haven't been documented. So I said, fine. And I met with the, the women's network um, and we all had this great excitement about just getting the stories written um, of, you know, these pioneering, pioneering women in, in prisons in Solomon Islands because it is a very male-dominated field. Yep. Um, it's, a, it's a job in which you have to solve conflicts, you know, almost on a daily basis. Um, and, and, of course, Solomon Islands had a civil conflict between 1998 and 2003 and, and has had many other issues, um, you know, uh, conflict issues since then. So, so a lot of, you know, rich um, experience, yeah, of these women who had been working in, in prisons and around prisons for, for many years. Um, so we had a meeting about it and, and decided we'd do a, a book and a film and a little bit of media as well. And, um, and at each, at, like I was sort of talking about before, like at each stage of the process, we just worked on things collaboratively. So like we all decided to, well, the women decided like what questions they wanted to ask each other. Um, then the women went out and interviewed themselves about their experiences um, and then we put those interviews in a big database and I did an, an initial thematic analysis and came back to the group again and we discussed it some more um, and sort of went round and round until, you know, we came up with this book um, and the film. Yeah. So as far as we know, it's the first time like women working in the correctional services sector in the Pacific have done something like this, really been open and able to share their experience um, and their learnings over the years. Amazing. So what was it like for um, these women, particularly the ones you call the pioneering women who started in the 1980s? Um, well, like for the pioneering women who were like the first to go in, what actually happened was um, in the 80s, like the first women were convicted of crimes and, and sort of sentenced to prison sentences and they realised they really didn't have a place to keep them. So initially they put them in the homes of the families of police and, and prison officers. Um, and from there, like, women started looking after the female prison prisoners and then they sort of went to work at the main um, correctional facilities when, when those were established for women. Um, and, then, and then there was a big push by the women's CSSI Women's Network to um, change the legislation so that women had the right to work in the male prison blocks. Um, so when that happened in the early 2000s, that was a big achievement for the women. And in the book, they described like crying tears of happiness at being able to go into the male prison, like something that they're always um, seen and been around and whatever, but actually to being able to work, you know, equal to men and to have that um, opportunity and that experience. Oh, really? So they were really fighting for this right to be able to work with the male prisoners? Mm, yeah, because it required... Um, legis legislative and policy change. So they fought for it for a number of years. And another, I think, inspiring story for me in, in the film is um, the story of Phyllis Dasfafoy. She was the chair of the Women's Network and she was just like, well, the thing is you have to follow up. <laughs> you just keep knocking on the door and, and following up with your proposal. And so 
um, in a large part due to her efforts, these these changes kind of happened, you know, just through persistence, I think, <laughs> um, and the strength of will to, to uh, make these changes. What an amazing story. So originally, um, the women prisoners were actually housed in people's homes. Once this became a bit more formalised, what happened? How did this work? Were the women housed in the same prison as the men? So then after that, they um, had a, a few cells at the end of the men's block for the women. And um, that was a funny experience for those women correctional officers working at that time because they had to, of course, pass the male blocks to get to the female blocks. And, um, you know, there were quite dangerous men in there yeah. and they were sort of try to, um, yeah, reach, put their hands out of the bars and touch the female officers that they went past and all of this sort of stuff went on. So then they... so that was during that time and then they uh, built a separate facility like a separate house for in the, within the same grounds but a separate house for the female prisoners yeah. um so after that um conditions working there became a bit better and then finally yeah the women were allowed to work in the female and the male um, blocks in the prisons and what was it like for them i mean it's a pretty risky environment did any of the women speak about feeling afraid on the job Mm. Um, well, different women have different experiences, of course. I don't want to over overgeneralize. Like some, some do mention that um, they were initially afraid or worried about going to work in the prison, particularly in the 80s, because there were a couple of um, incidents in the 80s where the prisoners broke out of the prison, and of course that puts you in, you know, quite a high security risk if you're Gosh. working during that time. Um, and also in the tensions because the, the militants um, overtook the prison in the tensions in the conflict. So, you know, quite uh, there were quite um, hair, scary experiences that they faced. Then on the other hand, you know, like a lot of women talk about, um, you know, like members of their family saying, what are you doing working in the prison? You know, aren't you afraid to work there? You know, like you're not as strong as a man, so how are you going to deal with the prisoners? And then the women sort of coming back with um, various responses, like, you know, I can do this work too. Um, you know, it's not necessarily about fighting. It's about, you know, other things like negotiating and, you know, talking to the prisoners and, yeah, dealing with some of the issues that they're having. Um, so the women, the pioneering women in um, the Her Story book and film kind of were really changing the social norms of their own families and their own friends, yeah, by educating them about what it actually is the role of a good correctional officer and, and maybe breaking down some stereotypes people have about how you work in the prison. Were they also judged for choosing this career path? Yeah, in some cases, yes. Like, um, like some of the women in the book talk about... Um, people more or less saying that they were, you know, like not the right sort of women because they're doing this kind of work because um, in some of the provinces in Solomon Islands, there's kind of norms about not women not socialising with other men outside their family sort of networks, right? So when you go into a prison, you're socialising with all sorts of men, you know, like your other correctional officers, you know, the prisoners, et cetera, et cetera. So for some, for some women, that's breaking a strong norm just to go into the prison and work. And then the other big controversy uh, was trousers, yeah, like that women wore trousers <laughs> as correctional officers. That was a special thing at, at one time, and it still is in it in some, in some senses. Um, 
So the fact that they had a man's uniform, the fact that they worked with men, these are breaking some of gender norms for some of the women in the, in the um, book. God, so impressive. Do you think that these women realise just how incredibly impressive they are? Did you, did you get a sense of pride from them when they were telling their stories? Well, I think that was one of the one of the positive impacts of the book and the film was it really, I mean, certain people knew about it already. Um, they had received, like some officers had received certain awards and, and um, you know, it's sort of widely known that, yeah, women in the correctional services have um, gone further and, and faster than, for example, women in the police force, but in Solomon Islands. But but and uh, they'd also previously um, the Solomon's women had previously started a network of women across the Pacific who work in corrections, so they have been seen as leaders, you know, in their sector for some time. But I think the book and the film really just opened up, you know, other people's minds and the general public's minds as to um, how much progress these the CSSI women's network has made and and what it actually you know these women have been through and experienced and actually triumphed over over the years. Yeah, wow. So these are impressive, powerful women, and they've got considerable authority in their working life. But they're also ordinary women, right? They're wives, their mothers, their daughters. So did any of the women talk about how their work translated into their home lives? What was that aspect like for them? Um, some did, like um, particularly some of the early ones. Like I think most of actually the early ones, the first wave, I would say, of female correctional officers, um, mentioned the support of their husbands and family. Right. Um, and maybe without that support, you know, it wouldn't have been possible. Um, one of the big um, achievements of the Women's Network too was to get maternity leave. So um, prisons were somewhat behind in giving women maternity leave, which meant that. Many of the earlier recruits um, actually work through their pregnancies pretty much. Um, and, you know, if the kids are sick and stuff, you know, it, it, it's you're in a really difficult position because there's maybe one or two staff, for example, looking after the female unit. And if you're off, then, you know, what are you going to do? You need to you need to be there. So a great pressure and responsibility on these women to come to work despite childcare and, and other sort of commitments. And then a few mentioned that, you know, the the type of work that they did at prisons or correctional facilities um, had meant they had arguments with their partners and their husbands, um, sometimes even violent arguments at home about it. So, you know, there was a spectrum of, of different experiences from women who didn't have support of their partner at the time and sometimes the extended family, you know, like the in-laws and, and, and so forth, and then others who, yeah, actually mentioned strong support from their family. Did any of the women actually um, speak about how they saw the situation of the women prisoners? Yes. In the film, there's a, a moving story about um, uh, Catherine Nalakia, who was on duty when one of the female prisoners was pregnant and sick. And um, she called for a nurse to come. And uh, that was late. And, you know, this woman was in a really difficult position and, and um, the pregnant woman and Catherine and Mrs. Nalakia had to make some really critical choices at the time. So there was that, like, particularly with the female prisoners, there was that um, sense of, 
you know, having a common understanding of what their what their issues were and what they might be facing, and sort of dealing with issues women to women um, to to solve some of these is- tricky issues that came up. Yeah, right. And and Nick, so what are some of your favourite stories? What are the stories that stick in your mind? Um, I think a lot of the stories that stick in my mind are just the persistence of 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 women in in um, getting into the service and then and then uh, serving, you know, as correctional officers and managers and so forth over the years. Like, um, for example, one of the stories in the book was about um, a woman growing up in a rural area and um, someone, one of the relatives had come to the house to say to all the local boys, oh, look, they're taking in recruits here for the, for the local prison. Um, and she sort of, sort of watched this going on and, you know, it was obviously no one was going to ask her to do it. So she had to go and ask her relative, is it okay if I apply too? You know, how do I apply? <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and at the time that was happening, like in the 80s, that was a huge step for a young woman to take, yeah, to actually um, to have that interest and drive to pursue um, an application for this kind of service. Um, and I think there's stories like that throughout the throughout the book. Um, so it's an inspiring book for me. Like it's... Um, it just goes to show that, uh, yeah, women are capable of breaking a lot of barriers. But, yeah, it's that persistence and that drive that you have within yourself to to go ahead. Absolutely. So these stories, they, they um, begin from the 1980s. So there must have been quite a bit of change over the years. Did you notice much difference between the um, experiences of the younger and the older women? Yeah, well, obviously the younger women have much better working conditions these days. Um, but um, on the other hand, what's funny to me is that we had a question in the in the book about, um, you know, when you were started doing this work, what were the comments from your friends and family? And the same objections that people raised to women um, being in the service in the 1980s, friends and family still raise today. Right. <laughs> so... So some of the gender norms haven't shifted that much, yeah. um, particularly, you know, outside in the rural areas, um, outside of urban areas. Um, and then the other thing, too, is maybe the domestic violence um, issue hasn't hasn't reduced, certainly. Yeah. Um, it's probably increased a bit. So the domestic violence issue for the um, women themselves, the women correctional officers having arguments back home. Um, just the level of it in society in general and also like um, disputes between partners about whether women should be doing, you know, working at night, for example, or working with other men. So that issue is still a live issue even for the younger recruits. Um, yeah, so in, in what's remarkable about the CSSI story is the institution has made remarkable changes. The women themselves have made remarkable changes, but maybe society in general Um has not changed that much since yeah they they started serving. Yeah, did the women speak about um, the perceptions of their male colleagues? Yes, yes. So a lot of women mentioned that their mentors were men, and um, that that those you know they had support from different people over the lifetime of their work to get them where they are now, um, particularly those who had risen the ranks. Um, and, and then others also mentioned, you know, problems with teams, like some teams not being that supportive of, of women and stuff. So there was different kind of experiences there. Um, but in general, we, we, we had this 
we looked specifically at like what are the attitudes of managers and co-workers then versus now and we found that the attitudes had really changed over time and that women you know who were recruited later were more likely to say that their management was supportive and their co-workers were supportive so i think that reflects that there's been a bit of an institutional change there which is positive Anouk, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and learning more about your work and hearing about this incredibly impressive group of women. Thank you so much for giving your time and um, for sharing about this project, her story. My pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Anouk Ride's work, visit her website at anoukride.com. That's A-N-O-U-K-R-I-D-E. Com. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and think others might too, please do share amongst your networks. Next month, I'll be talking with husband and wife team David and Maxine Hicks. We'll be chatting about their experiences working in Timor-Leste since the mid-1960s, including David's experiences as an electoral observer during the bloody vote for independence in 1999. He didn't bother to introduce himself, if I remember correctly. And then as we started off talking, what happens if, what happens if? And he said, well, if they vote for independence, then, and I quote him as best I can, it's back to square one. There will be a sweeping of, of this country. There will be a sweeping of this country. I'm your host, Deborah Cummins. Thanks for joining me. This is a Bridging Peoples podcast. <laughs> <laughs>